Each year, more than 12 million people will hear the same three devastating words. You have cancer. I'm Lee Silverstein, a survivor of pediatric kidney cancer and stage four colon cancer. My amazing wife, Linda, has taught me that we have cancer because every one of us is affected by it in some way. Survivors, family, friends, and medical and support team members. And we all have a story worth telling. Welcome to We Have Cancer. Welcome to episode 154 of We Have Cancer. Thank you so much for joining me. A little celebration news, I guess, is the best way to describe it from me. Uh, as many of you know, I've been in this stage four colon cancer battle for over nine years now. And I was talking to my wife, Linda, and I, we were saying, I said, have I ever had that you can recall two back-to-back clean scans? And we were like putting our heads together and we don't remember ever having two back-to-back clean scans. And guess what? I have now had two back-to-back clean scans. So uh, a little of the backstory for those that don't know, I had another recurrence, seems to be a New Year's a New Year's thing these last few years, but another recurrence right after the New Year started. Who knew that was going to be a uh, foreshadowing of <laughs> more bad news this year? But anyway, and went back on full theory as I was in 2019, and we did a scan end of March that showed no visible evidence of active disease. And based on that news, my oncologist and I made a decision to go on maintenance chemo, basically dropping the Erie from full fury, dropping the arenatecan and just going with a 10-minute uh, infusion of Avastin and then hook me up to a 5-FU pump, which I wear for 46 hours. And I went through two treatments of that, two weeks apart. And by that time, it was time for my next scan. And that too showed no visible evidence of active disease. So I'm... Um, very grateful for that good news. I don't use the word celebrate. And let me explain why. In the nine years, I've been through so many surgeries, so many chemotherapy treatments, ablations, etc. And often, and I know this is always meant with the best of intentions, that the doctors have said, quote, get through this fill in the blank surgery, ablation, chemotherapy treatment. And you should be good to go. And every time I'm not good to go, another recurrence happens. So I've walked past that bell in the chemotherapy and radiation suites, choosing not to ring it. I've ignored uh, friends and families who've encouraged us to, quote unquote, celebrate when we get a good scan. Because my history has been is that celebration is short-lived till the next occurrence. So rather than celebrating, we're going to choose to be exceptionally grateful for the good news and just hope that it continues that way. And many of you have reached out with uh, kind comments, and those are greatly, greatly appreciated. My guest this week is Dr. Garrett Pullman. Dr. Pullman practices out in Nebraska. And uh, one of the things that I absolutely love about the We Have Cancer podcast is coming up with guests on a new topic, a new story, 
And this is the first time as I went back through the archives that I've had someone on the show talking about prostate cancer. And Dr. Garrett is a urologist, specializes in dealing with prostate cancer. And we talked pretty much everything you need to know about prostate cancer, including signs and symptoms, treatment options, etc. So I hope you'll find this informative. And I invite you now to join me in my conversation with Dr. Garrett Pullman. Dr. Pullman, thank you so much for joining me. And I really appreciate you reaching out. As we talked before we hit record, we you know, rebranded our, our show to open it up to all of the types of cancers out there. And I realized that in the, over the last couple of years, one of the cancers that we have not talked about, so thank you for that, is prostate cancer. So again, my appreciation. Well, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. And it's also a pleasure to talk to a fellow podcaster. And as I mentioned in the opening, uh, anybody is looking for you know, more specific guidance, be sure to check out Dr. Pullman's podcast, the Prostate Health Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, let's just let's jump right into the, the cancer side of, of prostate. And what are the couple the current recommendations around screening? I heard 50. I know I got first got screened at 50. Is that still the guidance? And what, what are the recommendations? Well, it kind of depends on which organization's guidelines you look at. The one that I like to use is uh, put out by the American Urologic Association. And they kind of break it down into, first of all, kind of high-risk individuals. So, so men who are either African-American or those with a you know, family history of metastatic or lethal cancer, especially family history of prostate, breast, ovarian, and pancreatic cancer, or a family history of prostate cancer that developed at an early age, they recommend getting a baseline PSA at age 40 in those men. Then from ages 55 until 70 years old is where the kind of the greatest benefit appears to be for prostate cancer screening using shared decision-making, then the panel does not recommend further screening in men older than 70 who have less than a 10 to 15 year life expectancy. But, you know, some men over 70 who are in excellent health may benefit from prostate cancer screening. And for those who may not know, what is a PSA test and how is it administered? Great question. So the PSA stands for prostate specific antigen. So this is a, a protein which is produced by the prostate. So small amounts can be released into the bloodstream. So one way to think of, of a PSA is a man's check engine light. So when the PSA is elevated, it's time to get checked out and make sure it's not something you need to worry about. So the PSA is specific to the prostate, but not entirely specific to any one thing within the prostate. So things like enlargement of the prostate prostatitis or inflammation, infection within the prostate, but also prostate cancer can account for a rise in that PSA level. And how is the, how do we test the PSA level? So the PSA uh, is a blood test. And so that's how we can check it. And outside of the PSA, what are the symptoms that may reveal themselves that could be signs that of possible prostate cancer? Well, that's the thing. Unfortunately, there are usually not any early warning signs for prostate cancer, which is why screening for prostate cancer is so important. Now, more advanced prostate cancer may cause symptoms, including slow or weak urinary flow of stream, blood in the urine or semen, bone pain, 
Some of these symptoms, though, may also be caused by problems other than prostate cancer, including benign enlargement of the prostate and prostatitis. Now, with that being said, if you are having any of these symptoms, it is important to really notify your primary care provider or urologist so they can evaluate the situation. I see. And then how is the diagnosis of prostate cancer ultimately made? So now, again, if there is an abnormality detected on the digital rectal exam, so checked by your doctor, where they're feeling for any nodules, any firmness, which would be concerning, or if there's an elevated PSA, and then there's also uh, prostate cancer markers that we can now use to maybe help sort out maybe who does and doesn't need a biopsy, because that's how you're ultimately going to make the diagnosis is with a prostate biopsy. Um, but with those prostate markers, um, one of the ones that I like to use is called the 4K score. And what this does is it helps kind of sort out who is at high risk um, for prostate cancer and, and maybe who we can just continue to watch that PSA. Because again, the PSA is not a perfect test. So with some of these markers, we're doing a better job of determining who does and doesn't need a prostate biopsy. So as far as what to expect with a prostate biopsy, this is performed by a urologist, typically in the clinic setting. And so what I've done for your listeners is I've pro provided a, a kind of a what to expect guide for a prostate biopsy. And just to get that, they just go to my website at prostatehealthpodcast.com forward slash clinic. So what that includes is it's a free guide where it tells them or walks them through not only what to expect with a prostate biopsy, their first urology clinic appointment, but also with a prostate cancer consultation. In case people are listening and uh, might be getting nervous and haven't had a chance to click on the link, you know, di different types of biopsies are more invasive than others. Where would you put prostate on the, on that scale? Well, the, a prostate biopsy, like I tell most guys, you know, we, they're not lined up at the door to get a, a prostate biopsy for sure. But it's, it's something that can typically be performed in the clinic setting. Now, most of the biopsies that we're performing now, at least on the initial biopsy, is what we call a standard 10 to 12 core biopsy. So we kind of we split the prostate up into halves and we take five to six biopsies on each side of the prostate. And that's done in the clinic setting. Most guys don't need any sort of sedation. Now there is a more specific biopsy, um, especially in guys that have had a previous negative biopsy where we can get an MRI and then if there's any abnormal areas, then we could also, in addition to doing this, the standard template biopsy, we can take several more biopsies of the targeted lesions. And since we are taking more biopsies, oftentimes that one's done under a little bit of sedation just to make the patient a little bit more comfortable, but it technically could be done in the office setting as well. Where does prostate cancer rank on the list in terms of deaths in the U.S.? About one in nine men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer during his lifetime. Other than skin cancer, prostate cancer is the most common cancer in American men. It is the second leading cause of cancer death in American men behind only lung cancer. And when you think, you know, obviously different cancers have 
you know, typically if you hear someone's got pancreatic cancer, you know, certainly no cancer is good news, obviously. But, you know, the progress that's been made in making like a pancreatic cancer, you know, not the ultimate death sentence uh, isn't quite there yet. How do you rate prostate cancer in terms of treatability and curability? Well, Nobody wants to have prostate cancer. Nobody wants to be a part of that club. But what I tell guys is, you know, you know, compared to some other cancers, it, it is one that is treatable and, and it is one that can have good outcomes in terms of no evidence of disease after treatment if caught early. And so, um, you know, the hard thing about treating prostate cancer is, you know, we, first of all, we do have good outcomes typically if caught early but there's the side effects that come along with it in terms of the treatment. And that's what makes treating prostate cancer so difficult. You know, I, I treat other types of cancer as a urologist, including, for example, kidney cancer, take out a guy's uh, or, or a female's or a girl's uh, kidney. And in the men, you're not going to affect their sexual function. You're not going to affect their urinary control. And so those are two big you know, factors and side effects that we have to navigate in treating prostate cancer. Yeah, so let's let's dive in there a little bit uh, deeper. What are the treatment options and what are the pros and cons uh, of, of the current uh, uh, current options for treatment? Certainly. And, and you know, and we could get in, you know, we could have a, an episode on each one of those, but I'll, I'll try to really, you know, break it down for each one in, in concise, but, all, but also a detailed manner. And the really, the thing with prostate cancer, there is no one size fits all option for prostate cancer. So there's so many variables to take into account when men are counseled for prostate cancer. So we have to take into account their age, their personal preference, as well as their risk group, which takes into account the scoring of their prostate cancer that's called the Gleason score, how many cores are positive, and whether or not it's thought to be localized within the prostate. But when we talk about cancer that we feel is really localized within the, the prostate in that area. And the spectrum, first of all, ranges from uh, some men are candidates for active surveillance. So what this means is that you're not really pulling the trigger just yet on treatment unless needed. So one of the advantages of active surveillance is avoiding or, or delaying the side effects of the various treatments. So this is typically only an option for men with very low, low, and some favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer groups. And what, how, what this involves is really closely monitoring the PSA level, their prostate exam, often prostate imaging with an MRI, as well as a repeat confirmatory biopsy one to two years after the initial biopsy. And if the cancer is then thought to be changing, then a man could undergo treatment. Now, once a man gets older, around 80 years old, this can be then transitioned into what we can uh, call watchful waiting. So this is a, a less intensive form of observation where the goal is no longer curative intent should any changes occur in the prostate cancer, but rather symptom control. So that's surveillance. The next option is surgery. So this is typically, again, for the when we think the cancer is contained within the prostate. So we call this radical prostatectomy. So this involves removal of the prostate gland, the surrounding lymph node tissue, and seminal vesicles, which are glands just behind the prostate. Um, there are various techniques to remove the prostate, but probably the most common method, and, and this is how I perform prostatectomy, is a robotic-assisted laparoscopic prostatectomy. So this involves smaller incisions, which are made in the abdomen, 
and with the assistance of the DaVinci robotic platform. So the surgeon is sitting at a console where he is then able to control the robotic instruments in the patient's abdomen. So some of the advantages include less pain, blood loss, and recovery time. The next option is radiation therapy. So this utilizes ionizing radiation or photons to kill the cancer cells. So how, do, how does radiation work? Well, it damages the cancer cells' DNA. And this can be delivered by external beam radiation therapy, which is really the most common method radiation is currently delivered for prostate cancer, where radiation is then beamed into the prostate. These are typically delivered uh, five sessions a week with a total of 35 to 45 treatments for conventional approaches. Some of the newer approaches are looking at potentially shortening the duration using higher doses with moderate and ultra hypofractionization going from eight to nine weeks and all the way down to just five sessions with the ultra hypofractionization. So, and radiation can also be delivered via brachytherapy. This involves placing radioactive seeds or pellets that then emit the radiation to the prostate. So again, surgery and radiation are the, the two most common treatment options. There's also uh, cryotherapy, which involves killing the cancer cells by a freezing process. There's also uh, more exper experimental options they're still looking at, including HIFU or high-intensity focused ultrasound using heat to destroy the cancer cells. But again, when we talk about advantages and, and risks, um, you know, like we talked about uh, with surgery, you know, one advantage would be you know, you're getting that prostate out. And so if you were to have a recurrence, you could then go back and then do the external beam radiation therapy if necessary, where if you do the radiation first, surgery is not impossible, but it does make it a little bit harder to go back in and then do surgery after you've had a radiation therapy. Now, obviously, the advantages of radiation therapy is that it, uh, it's less invasive than surgery. You're not actually having to, to have incisions and to get cut on and have anesthesia, but it's a little bit more time intensive where you're having to go in for multiple treatments so, uh, over a course. So, Be sure to stick around to the end of this episode to learn how you can get your rear in gear. What about the different treatment options and the impact on lifestyle issues? So in, in terms of kind of getting back to the side effects. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about, you know, when I talk to men, the biggest two, you know, number one is goal is cancer control. And then, and then we look at the side effects. And then as far as the order of, of those, the priority is, is kind of up to the, the man, but number two uh, is generally urinary control. And so with surgery and radiation, that can affect a man's urinary control. So with, after surgery, uh, typically every guy has urinary leakage after surgery. Um, and that improves with time but it, it does generally take anywhere from six to eight weeks to slowly regain that urinary control where guys are having to wear pads, maybe even a, a depends or pull up for leakage, typically with movement, coughing, sneezing, but generally about 95% of men will regain that urinary control. And that's measured at about a year out after surgery to the point where they're not wearing any pads at all or down to one pad a day. And I would say those numbers are pretty similar for radiation therapy. The difference is with radiation therapy, it's kind of it affects, can affect more of the prostate in the bladder. And so oftentimes you get more of that overactivity and that urge incontinence where you can't make it to the bathroom on time. So the other 
a big factor for, for a lot of men that uh, they're concerned about is, will this affect my erections, my ability to have intercourse or have erections adequate for intercourse? And the nerves that control that function are stuck to the ca prostate capsule. And so when you remove that prostate, uh, some men are candidates to spare those nerves, what we call a nerve sparing approach. How we do that is we gently peel those nerves back in a way off the prostate, leaving them in, inside of you. Um, but even doing so uh, with that kind of uh, sparing approach, it can bruise or stretch the nerves. And those nerves are temporarily affected. Sometimes it takes anywhere from six to eight months, sometimes up to two years after the surgery to finally start to recover some of that function. And with radiation therapy, the difference is most men still have that function initially, but as that radiation effect starts to you know, take effect on the nerves, then further out, one to two years after the radiation therapy, that's when guys start having more difficulty with that function if they're going to have difficulty. What, if anything, can men do, Dr. Pullman, to minimize their risk of prostate cancer? That's, that is a great question. And um, that's something that we've been looking at for, for many, many years. And, you know, we've looked at everything from you know, vitamins and supplements and, you know, is there anything that, you know, and uh, what it really boils down to is um, at this point, there's really no magic pill to really reduce your risk. But what we are finding is, you know, lifestyle changes can actually affect survival um, when it comes to prostate cancer and maybe even reduce the risk. And so, you know, we know that men that are overweight or obese have a 30% more like, you know, higher likelihood to die of prostate cancer. So again, um, obesity increases prostate cancer mortality. And what we're also finding is that eating a healthy diet, implementing a, what we call a prostate healthy diet can also potentially uh, reduce the likelihood of getting prostate cancer as well as slowing its progression for those that have it. So what do we, what do I mean by a prostate healthy diet? Um, well, what I tell patients is what is healthy for the heart is healthy for the prostate. You know, the other question I get is, well, what diet's the best? Is it intermittent fasting or what about keto diet? Do I do paleo? Well, the, the answer to that is do the one that you like to do and the one that you're able to adhere to. So if it positively affects your numbers, improves your blood pressure, your cholesterol, and you're experiencing a healthy weight loss, then stick to it. And, and then lastly, regular moderate exercise. Not only does this decrease your risk for developing heart disease, stroke, but also it can improve your prostate health as well. So we know that not only trying to prevent obesity and its effect on prostate cancer, but we also know men who re exercise regularly are less likely to suffer from symptoms of an enlarged prostate as well as chronic prostatitis. And so those are kind of the, the big ones that, you know, I would recommend in men that don't have prostate cancer or in, in at higher risk, but also men that, that do have prostate cancer. What about smoking? Yeah, that's, that's definitely, we don't, that's a, that's a no, no as well. So, you know, and that's the thing is that with the, the thing that I think we're seeing less of, I, I think we're starting to see less of those smokers, but we're seeing a huge ob obesity ep epidemic. And so I, I think that's kind of taken the place you know, in that, in terms of, of prostate health. You mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, you singled out uh, African-American men. Why? Well, the, the reason I brought it up is 
African-American men are 1.8 times more likely to be diagnosed and 2.2 times more likely to die from prostate cancer than white men. But also, African-American men are slightly more likely to be diagnosed with advanced disease. Switching over to your podcast, uh, folks that subscribe to the Prostate Health Podcast, what are they going to learn? Well, thank you for bringing that up. So the Prostate Health Podcast is is a podcast that I we're going on our two months now since the launch. And we're interviewing experts, innovators, and leaders in the uh, field of prostate health, um, looking at the conditions that affect the prostate, but also the latest technology in managing these conditions. And so we're publishing these on a weekly basis and really just kind of getting down to, you know, you know, men's health, prostate health, you know, not only prostate cancer, but also uh, prostatitis, enlargement of the, of the prostate. And uh, you can go and find that at wherever you go for getting your podcasts, but also you can go to our, our website at www.prostatehealthpodcast.com. Or, and if you want to get more involved, we have a free Facebook group. Just search on Facebook groups, uh, Prostate Health Podcast, and ask to join. And um, that way you can be a part of our monthly newsletter that we'll be starting this month as well. Great. So we'll include all those links in the show notes for this episode at wehavecancershow.com. So if you haven't subscribed to We Have Cancer Show, let's do a two for one. Go ahead and subscribe to our show. And while you're there, subscribe to Dr. Pullman's Prostate Health Podcast show at the same time. And you can find that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else that you you get your media, uh, music, and podcasts. Well, Dr. Pullman, again, my thanks for coming on. I always tell my guests that if we can help one person with our discussion and, you know, if we encourage one person to go get screened, then our mission's accomplished. And I'm pretty confident that we've accomplished that mission here. So, and people know where to find you if they have further questions by uh, uh, jumping into that Facebook group as well. So thank you for again for joining me on the We Have Cancer podcast show. Be well. Well, thank you again for having me. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that traditionally I take a break somewhere in the middle of the show to share with you the various events that the Colon Cancer Coalition is promoting around the country. Obviously, with the situation as it is right now, and it many of us trying to adhere to social distancing, they've been unable to uh, obviously host their live events, particularly their get your rear and gear on walk events, things of that nature. However, you can still support them because they've transitioned several of these events to quote unquote virtual events really an easy way for you to support the colon cancer coalition from home and it's important to me to to share this message with you because i know so many nonprofits currently are really struggling for support with the current situation and they've been a wonderful and longtime supporter of the we have cancer podcast so if you're looking for ways to support the colon cancer coalition please visit their website at coloncancercoalition.com forward slash events. Thank you for listening to We Have Cancer and thank you to our sponsor, the Colon Cancer Coalition, for your support. You can subscribe to We Have Cancer by visiting Apple Podcasts, 
Google Podcast, Stitcher Radio, or Spotify. And you can find us on social media by visiting our Facebook page at We Have Cancer Show and at We Have Cancer Pod on both Instagram and Twitter. We Have Cancer is a proud supporter of Genie's Blue Angels, providing financial support to those affected by colorectal cancer.